Welcome to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. This is our attempt to speak the gospel out of every corner of Scripture. We believe every part of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is about Jesus. And this podcast is our experiment to publicly test that belief. Let's jump in. All right. Well, welcome to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Uh, Seth, how are you today, man? I'm fine. Are I'm you? Really, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, that's yeah, good. I'm good. I'm excited today. You know why? Why? My book came out today. Your book did come out today. Yeah. Congratulations. It's, thank you. It's called uh, Rewire I had, Your Heart. It is called Rewire Your Heart. I had this wonderfully embarrassing moment where um, this morning I walked into Barnes & Noble because I was told that they bought my book and right. we have it on the shelves. And I walked in like... Uh, the doors didn't open right right at nine. I was there like nine oh three, and they man. didn't open to like nine oh five. I was like trying to get in and get out before I got back to work. Right, and so I looked like this giddy kid out kind of outside the candy store to buy your own book. To, to, I just want to look <laughs> at it and like do like a Facebook live, like hey, look, oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. And I walk in and like my old book is on the shelf when God isn't there, but my new one is nowhere in sight, <laughs> and I'm like. Oh, all this work for nothing. Yeah, so it did not really feel like a launch day. <laughs> but if you buy David's book, you should Facebook Live it Ooh, for him. I like that. Then yeah. I, you can I can live um, surrogately through your experience of mm. looking at my book. Vicarious, <laughs> Vicarious Facebook feeding. Facebook feeding. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So anyway, yeah. So if you want, uh, go check out Rewire Your Heart uh, by Thomas Nelson, or f- pr- published through Thomas Nelson by. Me. It's by me, by oh, David Bowden. That kind of was kind true. of confusing. But anyway, pitch over. Here here we go. Read the book. Read the book. And we're moving on. Um, so today- Priestly garments. We are in, yeah, we're in Exodus 28 and 29, priestly garments, not to be confused with uh, Mormon underwear. Oh, that's most certainly most not. Most certainly not that. Secret Mormon underwear. That's right. Let's um, see. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, who is it? Um the presidential can't the, the the guy Mitt oh, Romney Mitt Romney <laughs> Mitt Romney's presidential underwear. <laughs> I just want to make sure I use his name in this. I'm really glad that Mitt Romney made his way into our podcast. That makes me very happy. Uh, kind of not. We're really. always really relevant here. With Super relevant. Fifteen year old political candidates. <laughs> He's only fifteen. I thought. Well, you had, I'm I mean, kidding. Two thousand and what? Four. Oh yeah. What, something like that. Remember yeah. What election he ran in? Yeah. Anyway. Well. Moving on past that. Have you seen a picture of secret underwear? No, I don't know what it looks like. We should affix it to this episode. <laughs> oh my gosh. Maybe by the end of this. Basically looks like a tank top and athletic shorts. Oh, in- interesting. For men and women. For men and women. Unisex jerseys. Uh, jerseys. <laughs> Mormon I had no jerseys. idea what Mormon to say after jerseys. that. Oh my goodness. Okay, well, we are looking at Exodus 28 and 29. If you'll remember last week, we sat down with Kristen Hatton. Uh, with her awesome book on Exodus, looking at finding Jesus in Exodus um, for youth. And we looked at the construction of the tabernacle and we skipped this section, 28 and 29, because there's like this little bracket. Um, and what's on the what's on the left and the right side of the bracket? Uh, the uh, lampstand. The lampstand. On the front side. Okay. And on the back side. <laughs> Backside. <laughs> we, this it's is like bad. Saying, it's like saying doo doo. You can't. Oh my can't. goodness! It's so <laughs> terrible. And then on the other side of the bracket is the altar of incense. The altar of incense. So you have the um, the altar, or sorry, the lampstand on one side, and then there's a break, and that's where we have this um, this little diatribe here on the priestly garments. 
and then we go back into the, the construction of the tabernacle with the altar of incense. So it yeah. kind of seems like this little parenthetical here. Yeah, it can either, it kind of, it's like God is giving instructions to his people about how to properly worship him. And obviously that includes not just the building, mm. not just the things inside the building, but also the people who are mm. operating Working in it. it. Right. But yeah, I think we can see that like, obviously people are different than things. And these two yeah. chapters are about the people that work. In right. the, it does in the feel temple. a little jarring. Right. As you're reading it, because, yeah, you're going from things to people and then back to But I think things. it is important that we have a lampstand beforehand okay. and an altar of incense at the end. And I think uh, Alec Matir just says, like, you should let that symbolism speak for itself. Um, and he says there is a sense in which, like, we're, well, we, we obviously we're going to see Jesus in this passage, but we're also actually seeing what we are as priests are called to do as well as a right. nation of priests are called to do. Mm-hmm. And what the priests are called to do is to shed abroad the light of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ to the entire world, mm-hmm. the lampstand. Oh, right. And even in the book of Revelation, the church is described as lampstands mm-hmm. over and over and over again. What is the purpose of the nation? Of, what is the purpose of priests to shine the glory of God broadly into the world? And we are to offer incense, like prayer, over mm-hmm. and over again throughout Scripture. Prayer is described as, as incense. incense. Right. Uh, even our lives are described as a burning sacrifice before the Lord. Right. So I think what we're seeing here is like the altar of incense and the lampstand show us like the roles of the priest mm. to shine and declare God's glory among the nations, right. but also to offer prayer on behalf of right. God's people. And both of those, and like a priest is an intercessor. It's a go-between between people and God, and both of those actions are priestly, So, uh, and they're, they go in different directions. So the light is bringing God's light to man, right? Yeah, and then the incense is bringing man's supplications to God, man's so, prayers, man's to prayers God. to yeah. God. Right. So that's very interesting. Like it's kind of like the two way street of our yeah. priestly role here in the world that we should be living our lives in such a way and and having Jesus on our lips in such a way that we are light to the world. That we're saying like, here, know Jesus. Let me bring him out of the tabernacle to you. But then on the flip side, we're praying for our neighbors and we're we're lifting up the needs of those around us to the throne, back to the tabernacle yeah. and saying like, God, hear these prayers like incense rising up to your throne. And being a priest, like being a priesthood of believers or being a nation of priests can sound really kind of strange and foreign. Oh yeah, sure. But what it really means is like you are God's representative in the world, communicating what God is like to the world and bringing what other people are like back to God. Right. So like you're bringing God's glory and his goodness and his gospel and his message to the people around you. That's mm-hmm. a priestly action. Right. But the other priestly action is taking the needs and concerns of the people around you and bringing them to the Lord. This is like the foundation for the one another in commands and also all oh, the yeah. prayer commands. Right. Like we are taking the concerns of others and bringing them to the Lord. That's what it means to be a priest in this world. Yeah. And that's what also meant back in uh, the Bible times. Right. Exodus times. <laughs> back in the Bible times. In the Bible times. Yeah. That's Thousands. awesome. Yeah. So that's, that's really what, encouraging. I like starting off with that. That's really nice. Um, uh, and and then, really, that's yeah. not what Aaron and his sons are doing are not so distinct from that. Like they're doing that same action that we kind of take for granted that we're supposed mm. to do in the world today. They're doing that in the Old Testament. They are have that unique responsibility of communicating God's glory to the people and taking the people's concern to God. Mm. But what's unique in the Old Testament is the structure and the symbolism and the sacrificial system built around it. And that's what we're kind of like talking about today. Right. Not so much the role. The role is actually kind of similar, mm. but what's around it has changed. Right. And the, and the other major difference is, uh, other than Christ being the fulfillment of the tabernacle, is the priesthood of all believers. Yes. That it's not well, just Aaron and his immediate sons, 
um, being consecrated in succession as they die off to be the new high priest that's, you know, one and only. Right. It's, we're all this, like, we're, we're all, all sons of Aaron. Yeah, sense. we're all sons yeah. of Aaron. Yeah, which is really cool. Um, but speaking of the structure and the rules and everything, let's dive in. Um, so we have a, basically, we, we've gone from describing all the curtains and the accoutrement that goes on in, whoa, all in the, um, in the tabernacle. Now we're looking with that similar level of detail at the priest's outfit. What yep. he wears. What he wears. And um, and so let's let what I want to what I want us to do before we start picking it apart because we're going to see there's all these different things that make it up and um, there's a lot of detail and symbolism in those. But I want to start at a higher level and go why are they dressed this way? Because we're going to read that they're in like gold outfits covered in precious stones fine and twine linen. fine twine linen and blue and purple and all this stuff. It's it's extremely detailed. And the question is why. And we get our answer in um, in verse 2 of chapter 28. And verse 40. And verse 40. It's repeated. Yeah. You're right. And, and and it says this, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and it gives us two reasons, for glory and for beauty. For glory and for beauty. Um, the that, That's the ESV. The, the NIV um, kind of takes the implications of glory and beauty and applies it to the translation. So I think it talks about dignity and honor. Oh, okay, but okay. but that's an implication of what these things are supposed to be doing for us. And so I feel like the ESV gets a better job because the word glory here yeah. is just the standard word for glory in the Bible that even talks about God's glory. So like later at the very end of Exodus in chapter 40, when God finally shows up and fills this tabernacle that they're building, it says that the glory of the Lord fills the, fill, fill the tabernacle. And glory kind of means like the fullness of who God is and his perfections and goodness, right? Yeah, it's like his, well, I mean, it's like a, so the Hebrew is, is kavod, right? And it means weight. Like it, it's something that's so weighty that it, it's important. The and weight, so like the weightiness, the, weight, of God. the weightiness of God, the gaudy, the gaudiness of God, yeah. <laughs> and not G A U D, like gaudy. Like is that how you spell it? Like gaudy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know, it is God's godness. That you know, it's it's His personhood. Yeah, His fullness, His beauty, His presence. In some sense, that's His glory. And and so, but what's interesting about this? mention of glory is that um, we can't really get around it. This is not God's glory that it's talking about. This is this is glory for the priests. So the the uh, the, mm. the 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 garments that they're putting on them is not for God's glory necessarily, like as a matter of priority. It's actually I want to put this glory on you. And so what I thought was really interesting, I, I this question popped into my head as I was reading this. I was wondering, I was like did were the Israelites used to priests like did they have priests in Egypt? Like, because yeah, they had, temp- yeah. and so I was like, yeah, of course they did. So I was like, so they're used to priests. I wonder what the, the priests they grew up around back in Egypt wore. Like, did they, right. were they decked out too? Or is that unique to what God's doing here in Israel? And I looked it up and it's unique. And so in, in the Egyptian priesthood, when they would go into all these different temples of the gods and everything, they wore complete white Egyptian cotton, like linen, yeah. like just completely white. And the idea was that it was like, they were showing their humanity and their baseness and like how the gods were were the the ones who got all the glory all the gold was on them and they they came in just plain and, and white and so what's amazing here is that god is giving his glory 
Like, right? Everything yeah. that's in the tabernacle that's meant to show his glory. The gold and the scarlet, and we're going to see pomegranates, like, on this on this mm. stuff, and we're going to see all right. these different things that belong to the tabernacle, God's abode, God's glory. He's saying, here, let me dress you in this, priest. And God is giving us his glory, which is that's so cool. crazy. It, makes, it helps also, like, fill out that phrase, like, he's clothing us with robes of righteousness. Yes. Like, later on, like, so, like oh, yeah, a white robe, I'm, I'm pure, it's a clean, clean right. clothes. You know, clean clothes are always nice, but that actually helps me understand a little bit more. Yeah. It's like God is actually giving us something of his weightiness and of his authority and right. of his perfection. He's, like, placing that on us. Yeah. That's really... Yeah, it's so cool to see, like, the uh, the... I don't know, the material of God's house, of the tabernacle, jumping off the page and like off the off the walls. Uh, off the walls. There <laughs> yeah. we go. Yeah. Jumping uh, off the walls and landing on a person. Yeah. And it's like all this glory, all these trappings, I'm putting on you now. So all the glory that I had, I'm now giving to you. Which obviously we we see in Jesus most clearly that we are clothed with Christ. Yeah. Is what the New Testament says, and I just think that's so amazing. That taking off the old man and put on, put the new. on. Yeah, that's right. And we are robed with Christ, and like we we are, we, are, we put him on, and so it's like his glory is given to us, which is so amazing. So yeah, that's one I, reason. It goes back to a question I was asking myself as I was writing, as I was reading through this. I was like, man, there's so much detail on what we are supposed to wear. These priests are supposed to wear, and yeah. it goes on for like. And my Bible is like three whole pages. <laughs> like it's just a lot of text describing this. It's so like, why is, and like we talked about that Jesus is a fulfillment. So like, why was Jesus naked? Like, oh, right. If he was the fulfillment of this, surely he would have been decked out in a similar right. manner. Especially like, at this high priestly moment when right. he is interceding for the sins of all mankind, going before the Father, surely he would be decked out. Right. But I was, as, as I've been meditating on it, as you were speaking, like, oh, the only way we get God's glory is if Jesus unclothes himself. Mm-hmm. He has to first take it off in order to clothe us with it. So, for glory, but what about for beauty? Like, why why is this created for beauty's sake? Yeah, I I feel like um, good old Protestant evangelicals are really comfortable with the glory part, but maybe not so much with the beauty part. That was like part of the Protestant Reformation. Exactly. Take all the beautiful things out of of the the churches because they were distractions. Yep. From the centrality of Christ. That's right. But here, not only in the tabernacle where there are so many beautiful things that God is taking such great care to meticulously architect, here also in the robes we see the same thing. And then we're told it is for beauty. And we can't get around it. The the the, the this word in Hebrew is used to describe elsewhere in the Old Testament things like fine jewels and like pretty couches and things like that. Like, this is just... What pretty couches there in the I, Old Testament? Oh, I, I would have to look it up again. I feel like it was in Zechariah or something. I'd, I'd have to look it up. But um, it's... Uh, and, and also, um, like, adornments, decorations. Like, this is an aesthetic word through and through. And so it's just like... It's, it's supposed to communicate artistic excellence. Yeah, beauty. Yeah. It's just yeah. beauty. And yeah. so, like, that's another thing. It's like, uh, one of the things that when we make something beautiful, it gives it honor... But I feel like the NIV goes too far whenever it just gives us that implication as the translation. And it says, for dignity and honor instead of for glory and beauty. Hmm. It's like, yeah, one of the extrapolations of us getting God's glory is that we are given the dignity of God. And one of the extrapolations of getting God's beauty, of getting like making things beautiful, is that they're given honor. Yeah. But like... You miss it if you just yeah. get one one of the points of something actually being beautiful. Like a, a practical application, like make beautiful things. Right. It's yes. not just like have, be honorable in your expect in your in your actions and your expectations of others and how you interact with people. It's like make 
beautiful right. artifacts. That's exactly right. And make yeah. beautiful spaces. Yeah. And there's a couple things we need to see here. First, uh, first and foremost is why beauty. And like we have to ask that question of the whole tabernacle and of these of these priestly garments in particular. It's because I mean this whole space is is to do one thing. It's to show us God and give us a place to interact with Him. And so if these garments are beautiful and God is putting His glory on us, He's trying to communicate something very clear to us. I am beautiful. Like mm-hmm. God is beautiful. Yeah. God is the most precious sight to behold. And, and like that is what these garments are telling us that like when you go into a king's court and you're arrayed in splendor, you are going you are going like that that way because the king is arrayed in splendor. It's like you go to a black tie gala because it's like, right. you know, everyone's dressed to the nines. And but so also, like, even more personally, like, you are beautiful yeah. as a human being. Like, not only do you have a particular glory that you're addressed in, but you, by virtue of being made in God's image, right. are beautiful. And that comes to you not by virtue of you comparing yourself to others or by looking a certain way, but by being made in God's image, by being given to that given that, clothed mm. that by God, by virtue of his design of, like, of you. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, it does. I mean, I think I, I, I think a modern listener could listen to that and probably extrapolate that a little too far and talk about like, well, I'm then I'm just, I just need to look at myself and just know that I'm okay it, all no, by myself, you, self-actualization, everything. No, like that. it's like the opposite. Okay. If you say like, well, I'm just going to do me and I'll be fine on my own. Like right. my, my standard of beauty is my own. Right. Like, no, then eventually that'll turn into self-righteousness. Because right. you'll end up saying, like, people who look like me are a new standard of beauty that I set up for myself. This happens, I think, pretty often. A lot of the Dove commercials and a lot of, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, 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 like I, a I lot of the Dove about. commercials or even, like, Megan Trainor, like, do you remember all that, that's all about that base? Like, what they end up saying, like, the best way to, like, be okay with yourself is by being okay with yourself and right. accepting that you're beautiful the way that you are. Right. But almost always it ends up by excluding another group of people that doesn't look like you, like mm. that new standard of beauty that you've defined for yourself. The only way that we have a universal standard where everyone gets to be beautiful mm. is if God gives it to us from the outside. Right. I think Dove tries to do the best job by being as kind of egalitarian in that right. sense and trying to like even in their most recent campaigns they've done a lot of this, but they still fail because they're trying to purchase beauty, right. buy our products. Yep. Then you can be part of this beautiful thing. No, God says I give you beauty for free right. by being mm. my creation. That's good. So in the same way that we are bestowed with God's glory and are therefore given, as the NIV would say, dignity. Uh, we're also clothed with God's beauty because we're made in his image and therefore we're given honor. And yeah. like, yeah, okay, that's cool. I like that a lot. So we are to see that God is beautiful. We are to see that we're made in his image and therefore we have worth and dignity and beauty in ourselves as human beings. And then also we're, we're to see um, that God cares about us making beautiful things as humans, um, which is really important that if something can just be for beauty, I think that's really important. Um, and, and I think we see um, that in the very beginning of the Bible, whenever God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, right? And he says, like, to tend and work this place, which, side note, I think I might have said this last week, but I'll repeat it here, that that tending and working in the garden that Adam and Eve were supposed to do those same Hebrew words appear here uh, when they describe the work of the priest in the tabernacle, that they are to tend and work. And so one of my favorite things that um, that, that Sam says, Sam Storms, our pastor here at Bridgeway, that he says about... Um, we should totally get on the podcast. We should totally get Sam Storms on the podcast. <laughs> but one of the things he says about this 
this uh, creation mandate or this this cultural mandate. Basically, what that means is like God saying, "Tend the garden." That command. What what one of my favorite examples that Sam gives is God created flowers, but He didn't create bouquets. And I just love that that oh, yeah. that He's given <laughs> us the joy of arranging the flowers he made in such a way as to make them even more beautiful that we get to play a role in taking the raw materials of cotton and uh gems and things like that and turning them into these vestiges of glory and beauty and i think too like not only for their own sake but also for communicating the beauty and majesty of god right like because all these things are taken and they're used to communicate a certain truth as the priest walks through the temple. So right. like I was I was just noticing like the onyx is used to communicate the names of the people of Israel. Yes. The breastplate is made for judgment. The uh something else is made for for guilt. The I think it's the the it's the plate right. on the head yep. is made the big gold to plate. communicate guilt and being it being taken away. Like yep. even like the fact of artistic skill is supposed to be used to communicate something about God. About God yeah. as well. It's from him to him and through, through him, him or all, all things, things. But it's also okay to like celebrate the beauty of the thing itself. Right. Yeah, we give beauty too much worth if we uh, allow our, our affections to terminate solely on it. But we don't give beauty enough worth if we don't let it take us to God. Like, it's got to do both. Like, we need to appreciate beauty for what it is, but also let us communicate um something about the one who made all things you know it's like the psalmist talks about like seeing god in all creation i think we can see him in artistic beauty as well and man-made things so i think what you're saying is it's not enough just to make a beautiful cake right you have to eat it too <laughs> like right yeah. like it's not yes. like nobody makes a cake just to look good right it, they make it to taste good right. and to communicate something about the skill of the baker as well that's right like so nobody just does that right it's taste and see Right. Yeah, that the Lord is good. Right. Which is what befuddles me so much about those cake competition shows. Mm. You know, because it's mm. like they they it's like. It's been a while since I've watched. It's one. all it's all about the presentation. But I'm like, is that even does it even taste good? I hate marzipan. Yeah. Right. And so, they use so much of it. They use so much of it. And fondant. Fondant's terrible, oh, but it's yeah. like it's all fondant. It's anyway, all so don't let your theology <laughs> of beauty be all fondant. <laughs> and no and icing. No icing. <laughs> we need the icing. That's the best part of the cake. <laughs> So um, we just talked about beauty in and of itself, and, and I, I think I want to circle back to that real quick and just connect that to Christ, because I think it's important for us to, to ask, like, um, why is it important that Christ be beautiful in and of himself? Um, and I think that's a really important question. I was having a conversation with um, a Jehovah's Witness friend of mine recently, and um, you know they believe that God um, will live in heaven for eternity uh, in, in Jesus, and we will live on a recreated earth below apart from him. And I was telling him how that's bad news, right? Because like in the in in Revelation, we see that heaven comes to earth and the the, the tabernacle is gone. And we dwell with God forever, and that's good news. And he said, "Why is it good news that we live with God?" And I said, "Because of who He is. He, he He's the most beautiful thing that we would ever behold. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere." You know, like uh, uh, what's Psalm sixteen say? Sixteen eleven. Uh, it's a, um, um, um. 
That's what it says. Pleasures forevermore. Yeah, at, at your, your right hand. hand yeah, pleasure. at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So I told him this, and he goes, so what does God do that makes him good to dwell with? And I said, it's not what he does, it's who he is. It's right. like that he is beautiful to behold. And so I just think it's important that like the, the New Testament has this, this narrative, and even like Day of the Lord stuff in the Old Testament, that there is this time that's coming when God will come to us in splendor and um, like First John uh, three two says that when we see him, we will become like him, for we'll see him yeah. as he is. And it's like there is something to behold in the beauty of Jesus. It's not like an objective truth, but it's actually what's most true. Yeah, I was talking with we have a we have a Japanese student staying with us, and she was asking me about Jesus, and she asked me in a never a way I've never heard before. She has said, "Why? Mm. Why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you believe in Jesus? Not like." How did you become a Christian? When right. did you become a Christian? What is the gospel? It's like, why do you believe in Jesus? Yeah. I think what I really wanted to answer was like, because he's beautiful. Yeah. Because the story that he tells and the salvation that he accomplishes is breathtaking. Right. Like, that's why. Yeah. Um, I didn't say that because that doesn't make a ton of sense <laughs> on its own. But like, yep. that's what I really want to say. Like, yeah. he makes the most sense. And even for like the Christ-centered reading of the Old Testament, like, this story is beautiful in the way that it weaves together and finds its right like end point in Jesus. Yes. Like when we end those moments on Jesus and then yeah. we, the music starts, <laughs> we do that because those are beautiful moments that we want you to meditate on yes. and like ponder and not yeah. just fly over. Right. Like it's moments of beauty that we right. want you to stop. And because yeah, so yeah, Jesus is beautiful. I, I I hope that's something that as we do this podcast, you guys are seeing more and more. Uh, it's something we see more and more. So, uh, speaking of uh, beauty and all these elements of it, uh, let's look real quickly at some of the pieces of these garments that the priests wear. So we talked briefly, flew over them. Let's look at them a little bit here. So the two so, onyx stones with the so, twelve well, names of Israel. Well, yeah, they go on something though. So oh. there's first there's the ephod, which mm-hmm. is brought up right, which like people are so all over the map about what an ephod is, but basically it's a linen piece um, that is probably worn like draped over your chest and this one has shoulder pieces attached to it and it seems like actually almost everything that is described is hooked into everything else so the breastplate's connected to the e5 wow. the, no we're not okay <laughs> but uh but uh so so anyway regardless of what it is it's this like thing that's most likely draped over the chest or connected to shoulder pads or something like that and um like you've said there are these onyx stones and there's two onyx stones that are put into the shoulder pieces of this ephod, and on them are the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And what's amazing about that, the the whole purpose of that is that every single person in Israel would be able to look at the garment that the priest wears that he takes into the holy place where God is and say, that's my name. Like, I'm going into the presence Mm -hmm. of God. I'm part of Reuben. Right. And I'm going into that that place. And like so it's such an amazing idea that like the priest is taking the names of the people into the presence of God. And 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 that's what Jesus does and, for us, right? Yeah, and Aaron shall bear their names before yeah. the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. For for remembrance, right. To bring them to the Lord. And so Jesus does that for us. He takes our names upon him. Like I love that hymn, like my name is graven on his hand, you know? Like yeah. I love that. Like he takes our names to the throne is in constant intercession for us. So we, we know that like before the throne of God above, our, it, my name is written on Jesus's hand. Like my name is on a stone that's on his shoulder that is always before the Lord. 
And like, you can look at that through any number of ways, but it's like, there's the book of life, you know, it's like my name's in that book and it's before the Lord and it's there. It's in, it's in black and white. It's in stone. I don't know. There's just a lot of joy and assurance and beauty that I get from thinking about my name on a stone in heaven that Jesus is holding before the Father. Yeah, I just think that's so cool. I like the permanence of that too. Yeah. I think it's really hard for most Christians to feel like they're really Christian. Like, right. How do I know that I'm saved? Yeah. Because I think a lot of us ask them in like, well, how do I really know that Jesus saved me when I trust in him that he, and he died for my sins? I believe that he died for my sins, but how do I know he really saved me? But I think that's kind of like a bachelor asking, how do I know I'm really single? <laughs> like, if you've actually trusted in Jesus, he's taken your name, engraved it on stone, engraved it on his hand, and you can't take that back. Mm. If you've believed that, the hard part's over. If you're already a bachelor, you're actually single. Yeah. If you've trusted in Jesus, his na- your name is already before the Father. It's engraven on the stones. It's written in the book of life, and he's always already praying for you. Yeah, I love that. It's so It's so cool, these little, like, eternal beautiful truths that we see in stones on a shoulder piece that's something i would just normally read over but it's like when we actually stop and look at it we see something beautiful another thing that we can see is um on the breast the breast piece of judgment which is a really interesting idea that's like which let me stop real quick and just say like the you have the breast piece the breast piece of judgment and then you have the turban that has that gold plate for guilt that you talked about earlier and it says that it will bear the guilt and then later in Leviticus, it talks about like if these priests, you know, don't wear their robes, there's nothing to bear their guilt. So another thing that these robes do is it like the the guilt that they have when they enter in is put on somehow these robes instead of the person. So we're told at the end, I think, of chapter 29 um, or, or something, it says um, that if you like do these things so that you do not die in the presence of God. So I just want to also throw that out, that another reason why these exist is not just for glory or just for beauty. They're also protection from the, the wrath of God against sin. And so, like, I mean, when we talk about being clothed with Christ, like, the only yeah. the only plea that we will have whenever we come to see God face to face will be like, you won't be looking at your past righteousness and go, oh, just like I- I'm clothed with my humanitarian efforts, or I'm clothed with the fact that I was a good person, or I'm clothed with the fact that I went to church for a while. It's like, no, no, no. The only thing that will cover you and keep you safe in the presence of God are the garments of Christ. Yeah, and Paul picks this up in Ephesians 5, the, mm. plate, the breastplate of righteousness, That's right. the helmet of salvation. Yes. Like, I, I think he's probably borrowing a lot of that imagery Definitely. from here. Yes. Like, what do we put on as Christians? Like, how mm. do we guard ourselves and prepare us for life in Christ yep. now? It's by remembering that Christ is what these priestly garments were That's right. for these priests. 100%. Yep. That he is our helmet of salvation. He is our all of these things. Our gospel yeah. shoes. He's our that's gospel my, shoes. That's my favorite one. Like my gospel, gospel shod with the feet of the gospel. <laughs> got to put on my gospel Nikes. Yeah. Um, and so, but anyway, another beautiful your thing I want you to look at. Your Jeezy's. Gospel. I like that. Yeezys. I'm for that. Yeah. For our younger audience. <laughs> that's for our younger audience. I mean, you can be old and have Yeezy's. You can, but if you, know, if you do or not, statistically, <laughs> I just, I'm very... Uh, so, um, the other cool thing, so we already talked about the 12 names on the two onyx stones. We see another 12 on the breast piece of judgment. Uh, you have the, these 12 stones, you have four rows of three precious stones and some of these stones. Each one represents a tribe of Israel. Israel, That's right. And, and then, and we're told that explicitly, we don't have to extrapolate that. Um, but, uh, we, uh, but these are, these stones, some of these stones and these names are repeated in Revelation. 
which is so cool that when we look at the heavenly tabernacle, so what we need to remember is that um, when God is explaining to Moses what he wants the tabernacle and what he wants the priestly garments to look like, he says that these are a copy of things that are in heaven, and he's relaying them to Moses. And so whenever we get to Revelation and we see, oh, there's a temple up in heaven, there's a building, and it's similar to this one we're reading about in Exodus. We should be like, well, no, duh. Right. We were told that this is a copy <laughs> of the one the down below. And so uh, when we go up there, we see, oh, these stones are up here, and they're the names of the tribes of Israel. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is the tabernacle that we were talking about. But what's amazing is that um, whenever the tabernacle comes down, when heaven comes down to earth at the very end of the Bible, whenever heaven and earth become one, uh, it says that the tabernacle is no more. And like all these precious gems and stones and names are all gone. Yeah. Where'd it go? It's all Jesus. He's the one who replaces the tabernacle. And so the the beauty of of being with Jesus, you know, uh, the beauty of being with God, of having our names brought into God's presence that we just talked about, the consummation of that is not a continual, like, um, participation in this system where our names are written on Jesus' hand or on a stone and it's taken to God. It's that God comes to us with such closeness and such glory that that representative like where our names are carved into his body, like yeah. his whole life. Yeah, and it's just him. There's, like, yeah. He is fully human, right? a full represent, representative for us and fully God, like he himself. What the priest is supposed to do, communicate like, God to the people and the people's concerns mm-hmm. to God, like Jesus embodies that because he's fully God right. and fully man. Like, And that happens in his nature, in his personhood all the time. Like humanity is represented constantly. Right. In the presence of God. Yeah. And what's just amazing is like when he returns to earth, like we will get to live in that reality of right. What right now seems theological, it will be material and actual and we'll see it. And it won't be just something cerebral that we think about or meditate on or trust in. It's something that we'll actually experience that the beauty of the stones that we can think about that are in heaven that have our names written on them will be such a physical reality that the stones, no matter how bright or brilliant they are, are outshone by the presence and beauty of Jesus. I think that's so cool. It's exciting. So chapter 29 and the consecration of Aaron and all of his future sons. Consecration? Consecration. What's that mean? It means to be like set apart or to be given the authority to do a particular task. Like okay. you're, you're set apart to do this thing. Like we talk about ministers being ordained. ordained. Like yeah. that's the kind of language. Like these people are set apart to do a particular set of tasks, particularly to be a light to the world and to be intercessors on the behalf of God's people, to be yeah. lamps and to be incense, like the altar of incense. I think we should make the ordination processes for like preachers nowadays to be this intense. This is really intense. It's super intense. I had a really hard time following how many sacrifices <laughs> on which day and in which order like they lot. were have to do. But I think it's a bull and two rams for seven consecutive days Okay, leading up to their final consecration. And there was a ceremony when they would place their hands on the mm-hmm. animal. And I guess it would be the throat would be slit right. as their hands are on the animal. The animal would die and the blood would be thrown either on the altar or on themselves at a particular point in time. And then after all that happens, it happens again right. for seven consecutive days. Mm. And then they're ordained. And then at the very end of the chapter, we're told that they needed to continue every day uh, to offer two lambs. After that. So like every day 
every generation of priests, after they had been sacrificed, after they had been consecrated through sacrifice, three animals, seven days in a row, would continually have to offer sacrifices every single day in order to do the priestly ministry. And that's not for other people. That's for themselves. That's right? for themselves. That's so like, they can just continue to be a priest. Yeah. that I think Hebrews says it pretty simply, Hebrews 7.27, they need to offer sacrifices day after day because they are sinners representing other sinners, mm-hmm. ministering to sinners but in front of a holy God. Right. And there's this constant need to, in that type of relationship or communicating God to others and taking people's needs to God to be pure and yeah. to be holy. Um, they have no right in and of themselves to be that person. So they need to offer sacrifices day <laughs> after day after day yeah. for the purification of sins. But Jesus Christ is the final sacrifice. Right. And so all the priests sit down. Right. Which and, I think and Jesus sat down. Jesus at the sat right down. hand of God. He the, sat down. The work was done. He sat down. There you know, one thing we don't see in the whole tabernacle as it's being described. Is a chair. Is a chair. Except for one. There's a mercy seat, but who sits on that one? God. God sits on it. <laughs> and so there's no seats for the priest, man. They got to keep working. But when Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, he was saying, It is finished. No more sacrifice needed because I don't have to sacrifice for my own sin because I was sinless. So let's ask this. Let's ask like a kind of a practical yep. question out of this. Then, okay. so we are a nation of priests, yep, consecrated and set apart for a particular task in this world, not by our ability to perform the sacrifices or provide twenty-one, a twenty-one bull salute, <laughs> but like this brand, twenty-one ram, twenty-one ram salute, twenty-one ram salute, but like um, by Jesus's works, yeah, but that's. For a particular type of lifestyle, our life is a living sacrifice offered to the Lord, according to Romans. What does that really look like for the believer? What does like gospel-centered, Jesus-centered, consecration for action look like? Well, I mean, let's ask the question of like what you you talked about, like these people, these priests standing in between the people and God, and um, and they were sacrificing in order to show um, who God is like as holy, who they were as sinners, and how God is dealing with it through a sacrifice, which is mercy. Like, I'm not being judged as I should be. Instead, God is deferring my judgment to someone else, even though I'm guilty. And so um, what it looks like for them to live out loud as priests would be to publicly do their priestly duties, to show every single day, um, look, I'm sinful. Like, here's my sacrifice to prove it. Like every single day, could you imagine being that confronted with your sin every day that you had to like kill something for it every single day? And so, and then they give a testimony to the fact that like God is forgiving me through this and now I can go in, intercede for you and bring light out from him. And so I think the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is how do we live out loud as priests as a living sacrifice? I think we need to be pointing every day to the one who has made the final sacrifice, that we are not saved every day by our daily merits of sacrifice, that like, man, what did I lay down on the altar today? And uh, man, I just got to really make sure I do that. So today's sacrifice really stacks up. I Tom Brady it. I Tom Brady it. <laughs> just, just, like, just stacking that stat sheet. Is that what it is? Yeah. Tom Bradying it. He's like, he's like known for being famously disciplined. Oh, okay. And like after I didn't know the that. most recent game, like there was a comedian that tweeted out, like, man, Tom Brady's so mad he went home and rage ate another almond, an extra almond, <laughs> an extra almond. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So we don't have to live like that. The way we live is by by showing outwardly like 
the gospel of Jesus. Like, I think we point to his sacrifice every single day. He is the once for all sacrifice, not us. And I think too, even like the idea, so like, how do we actually, so I think we need to speak the gospel. We need to actually tell other people, like the, one of the fundamental actions of a consecrated person is to tell others about Jesus. Yeah. And I think here we also have like a nice rubric for it. Like it begins with an acknowledgement of our own brokenness and yes. need of repentance. Right. And so I think a Priests lot of times... Priests are the first to sacrifice. So I think a lot of yeah. times Christians think that the best way that we can be lights to our mm-hmm. world is by being perfect representatives. It's really good. But actually I think it's a vulnerability in front of non-believers is yep. probably one of the quickest ways in which we can preach the gospel to them. Right. We talk about in our church with even kids, like repentance is shorthand for the gospel. Mm-hmm. It says that like we don't have what it takes to keep it all together, but Jesus does and he promises to provide. So like when you communicate the gospel, don't just tell them the gospel story, share how you have failed and how Christ is filling you up. Yeah. Because that is actually communicating the grace of God through his sacrifice repeated in your life towards others. That's a priestly way to live mm. your life. It's really good. I think it's really helpful. So if we were to kind of push into that then, and I mean, should we just pull up Romans 12 and actually read it since we keep quoting it? Sure. Just that way we can actually see what we're talking about here. So Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, so I'm appealing to you by God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So... I know a lot of times I hear this verse referenced in talking about not necessarily a priestly duty at all, even though that's what's being described here. We kind of miss that as 21st yeah. century readers. Um, I always hear this as like, you know, what are you doing to lay down? Are you going to lay down everything for Christ? Are you going to give it up? Are you going to put it all on the altar? And it just seems like there's always more someone's wanting from me. <laughs> like yeah. that it's like, I just, I got to lay it all down. And like, that seems to be like the constant altar call. I did air quotes. No one can see it on the radio. (laughs) Altar call is like, you know, give it all up. What are you holding back? Uh, Like put it all out there. I'm like, man, Jesus put it all out there for me. So that's a truth, right? And he's appealing to us by that mercy. So he's talking about, it's the mercy of, of God that he's given to us through Jesus and his final sacrifice. By that, he's appealing to us to then offer up our bodies as living sacrifices. So what does that mean? Is that like, are we... Like like uh, like Paul says elsewhere, are we carrying the death of Christ with us everywhere? As and like taking his incense aroma around, like yeah. he talks about that. Is that in Second Corinthians? I think he's taking you take that around. To some, it smells like life. To some, it smells like death. The Bible says, and it's like, does that is that what it means to embody the life and death of Jesus and just speak the gospel, be evangelists, or is there something more practical? We've said it is that, right? So, but is it more than that? Is it also like some kind of practical, holy living? What does it mean to be a living sacrifice is what, what I'm getting at here. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, one, we know two irreducible elements is sharing the gospel. Yes. And I think through vulnerability, I think we can say that yep. like as a real practical outworking of this, but also praying for others. Yeah. But I think too, like it does demand, like you are not your own, you were bought with a price. Mm. So there is a sense that we like, Paul talks about like buffeting his body, like training it like an athlete, working like a farmer, uh, being diligent like a soldier, like these really powerful disciplined metaphors. So I think there is a degree of sacrifice demanded by Christ's sacrifice for us that goes beyond sharing the gospel and praying for other people. But it says like 
my whole life is oriented towards a particular goal right. of seeing Jesus glorified. Yeah. And for peop- certain people that will look differently, God will call us to sacrifice in different ways. To some people, he will call them to be missionaries in countries that are uncomfortable and literally requires them to leave their homes. But for many of us, that looks like just leveraging our lives and our authority and our position and our power and our privilege so that other peoples might gain more of Christ through what we already have. Right, so acting out the gospel, right? Yes. Like, like divesting ourselves of our own glory and honor in order to serve others, which is being is like imaging Jesus uh, yeah. and what he did for us. I think that's really great. I think it's also just impossible to get out of this priestly language about like putting on display what God's done for us in Christ. It's like what yeah. I think when I now I'm just reading it over and over again as you're talking here looking at living sacrifice, living sacrifice. What does that make me think of? It makes me think of Galatians 2:20, right? Where it's like uh uh I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I keep on living. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, now yeah. not I, but Christ lives in me. Right. In this life, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So as we were walking around, we're like zombies. Like we're like yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. we're dead and alive and we're we're living sacrifices. And so yeah. but it's like and we're made holy and acceptable to God, not by our own sacrifice, right? That would be paganism. That would be right. anti gospel. We know that can't be the case. So what's the sacrifice that makes us holy and acceptable to God? It's Jesus' sacrifice that we carry around in us, the aroma of Christ, yeah. which is light and incense, right? Yeah. It's the it's it's the menorah and it's the table of incense. It's yeah. both, which is really cool that we get to be light and smell to the world. And it, and it redeems sacrifice for us. Mm. We can actually give up all things. We can say, hey, I'm going to give away 30% of my income and it not feel like sacrifice mm. because we've been given all of that's right. All of Christ already. Like I think part of the, the the legalism comes when you say sacrifice looks this way for all people right. in all times in yep. all places. But I think the Lord is being a little more nuanced than that. Like He's saved individuals mm. and He's calling all of us to sacrifice, not only to image to image the sacrifice of God in our own lives by taking what is most precious and what is most unique and what is most like what we have and sacrificing for the sake of others to know Jesus. Yeah. We do that in our marriages. Yes. We do that like in like and those are like relational ways. Like that's yeah. relational, like that's a relational laying down, but we also do it with our resources, whether that's yep. money or time, um, or power or right. voice. Yeah, exactly. Like how are we leveraging this podcast yep. so that others can experience the love of Christ, not just by talking about Jesus, but by the guests that we choose mm-hmm. and the way that your, the, your nonprofit is organized. Like, right. How do we do that well in yes. image of the gospel? That's really good. I think that's really helpful. Well, one last thing we should touch uh, is um, the the point of all of this. I, I kind of want to go to the very end of Exodus 29, uh, and you get this promise at the very end, which, which is so beautiful. So he says, after you do all this stuff, all these consecrations, the 21 ram salute, which is my new favorite thing, <laughs> um, <laughs> in verse uh, 43, he says, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. And then here it is. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt and that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And so like the whole point of this, what's the point of the tabernacle and all these priestly garments and all this detail? What's the point? It's to live with God. Like that is what it's all about. And what I love is that we see this tabernacle, we see these stones, we see all this detail up in heaven at the end of Revelation coming down to us. And when it does that, when it transmutes into our world, 
The tabernacle's gone, the walls are gone, the curtains are gone, the stones are gone, and all we're left with is Jesus. And it's, we get to live with him forever. He gets to be our God, we get to be his people, and all the beauty we see here described in Exodus and the tabernacle and the garments is fulfilled in seeing Jesus face to face. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Spoken Gospel is a nonprofit organization dedicated to creating gospel-centered media that speaks the gospel out of every corner of scripture in every corner of the world. To learn more about the ministry of Spoken Gospel and view more of our resources, visit SpokenGospel.com.